Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I have a very special guest, a wonderful colleague and friend of mine, Elena Ayakono, who is a well-being expert. We actually work together. She has quite an interest in well-being and mental health and topics that are very much part of our everyday conversation right now. She has a lot of experience in specifically talking to large company audiences about workplace stress, managing well-being, and dealing with some of the challenges that many of us who work in the information technology industry would have faced, uh, working from home especially, of course, dealing with what everybody else in the world has been dealing with in the last couple of years with COVID and all of the restrictions that come with that and maybe some of the isolation and missing some of the experiences that we would normally love to have. So I would love for Elena to introduce herself and say a few words about her background. Elena, thanks so much for coming on today. Yana, thank you for having me on again. Every time we speak, I'm always left so rejuvenated and it's just so good to be here today and talk about good well-being ideas and just things that are percolating and just to help each other keep going and keep living in a way that we can keep thriving. Thank you so much. Elena was a guest on the Audiobook Reviews in 5 podcast in 2021, and this feels in some ways like a part two of our conversation. Elena, tell me a little bit about some of the topics that have been on your mind over the last few months as our work situation, our life situation has evolved, and what you're thinking about in terms of how you can help people today who might be listening and looking for your advice. I've been thinking of a couple of themes since we last spoke, and I think this discussion today is very timely. And I'm thinking about where people are at just in general. And we know that people's expectations and values have changed and people are just so intolerant of so many things. You know, people are worried about going back to work or back to the office rather. Uh, we've been working obviously over these past uh, couple of years and just even the word COVID, like we're just so done with it. So I just feel like we're at a point right now where now what? And I feel that there's a lot of anger. There's there's a lot of tension among people. And it's really troublesome, to be honest with you. Not only do we have to be careful with you know what we're saying and how we're engaging with each other, but just the smallest things uh, are angering people. It's troubling because we know that mental health has always been a major concern in this country. I think by 2023, it really will be uh, even worse than it's already been. And so I'm worried about how people are treating each other, and I'm worried about how people are thinking to themselves. Mm. So when you mention the Canadian health landscape, and again, I think this applies to listeners in many countries, many listeners would be experiencing similar challenges, but because you've had a lot of hands-on experience with specific challenges, and you mentioned people being angry or frustrated, what are some of the incidents or examples where anger or frustration is coming out that maybe it wouldn't have come out before a few years ago, something that strikes you as new and maybe more relevant for what people are dealing with right now? I think I can answer that looking at, let's look at the workplace and then let's maybe work look within personal relationships. Within the workplace, I'm seeing things are just getting escalated so quickly. An example would be colleagues are you know, very aggressive with each other when normally you know that these people are so amicable and they work well, they collaborate well. And it's because so much is happening within their personal lives and people are bringing that with them to the workplace. And it's affecting how people are showing up. 
And I'd say within personal lives, there's a lot of division still with this whole notion of mandates, vaccines, and it's a lot. And is it tearing people apart? I don't know if I go that far, but it's causing a lot of frustration and a lot of anxiety too. People are avoiding each other, I'm seeing. And I don't want this to be a Debbie Downer discussion, but these are just some of the realities that we continue to face and we have to think about how we can turn this around because our well-being will suffer. That's such an important point. And I'm completely on board for talking about challenging topics and issues. And yeah, there are some really unfortunate patterns emerging in social interaction. And avoidance is definitely one of them that I've seen. When you see avoidance emerge in the workplace or in personal lives, do you see it as people misunderstanding each other and then they just don't talk to that person because they assume uh, maybe the person had a bad intent or that they feel misunderstood? Whereas before, maybe that person who felt misunderstood or they felt hurt, maybe they would have approached their colleague or their family member because they would have had more in-person interactions. It depends, obviously, on the specific situation, but I'm seeing that in my own environment, and this isn't about my workplace, this is just in general friends telling me their experiences, they just don't have any energy to deal with conflicts or, you know, they're, it's almost like we're giving up on each other and we're kind of just like barricading ourselves in our homes. It's easy now, it's winter, obviously, depending on where people are. It's cold, figuratively and literally, but um, I worry that people are giving up on working through things with respect. Um, and it's just so important that we do. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges? What happens if we don't work through those things? Well, relationships suffer. I mean, in the workplace, we impact the business. We're not collaborating. We're not thinking about running the business as well. And then personally, we tend to withdraw and it leads to even more isolation, which is already uh, plaguing so many people. So I think bottom line, we have to figure out a way of resolving our conflicts. We know that we're all exhausted. We know that our outlooks on life have changed. We've rewritten what's important to us, which is fine. That's great. We need to grow. But I think if it starts um, impacting our relationships and how we work and show up, then we've got big discussions to have. Yes. And then you mentioned a moment ago, the impact of winter. And in winter, even in the best of years, many of us have the instinct to cushion ourselves and isolate and just be cozy and, and, and hibernate like grizzly bears. But with all of the other stress, this tendency is bringing out some of these behaviors that you're mentioning even more so. I'm wondering if you want to specifically address an article that you actually raised with me about toxic culture and how toxic culture relates to what is being called the great resignation in the workplace. This is a term that comes up fairly often in popular media, typically refers to how millions of people have resigned, left their workplaces to go into new jobs or entirely new lines of work. Talk a little bit about that idea of toxic culture and its impact on all of us. The way I understood that article, which we'll have the link in your show notes, the way I understood that article really was about people working in an environment where it's toxic from a sense that perhaps there's a lack of appreciation or good mental health is not enabled. There's lack of clarity. Uh, Things are not properly or thoroughly discussed. People, they don't know what their expectations are. And these small things compounded 
uh, over the weeks and days that people are working impacts mental health. And I think a toxic culture is one where there is a lack of clarity. People don't feel like they've got a purpose or they're working with meaning. And those are really important skills that we can all uh, sharpen um, and we can all think about no matter what type of position that we're in. And so I think people are at a point right now, and this doesn't translate for all industries, because I, I do know that I'm reading it through a you know corporate Canada lens, but um, people are people are done. And it goes back to what I said before about expectations and values and outlooks and thinking critically about how people want to spend their time. And so I think organizations are at a turning point thinking about what elements of the culture are so important. Work is always going to be there. It's how we do the work that matters. And I think people are um, no longer tolerating things that aren't building them up, giving them purpose, giving them a chance to grow. And growing, by the way, isn't just about getting you know a more senior title. It is about stretch projects and getting involved in things. I've got something cool coming up soon, and I can't wait to get involved. It's a new new assignment. So that's just an example of changing things up. And my leader is always doing such a great job in helping me grow. And that for me is huge. And I think those are the things that people are really looking for. Compensation, of course, is always number one, but there's other factors that will keep people in an organization. And this whole concept of toxic culture is one that uh, people aren't standing for anymore. And people will leave, you know, it's time for great employment opportunities. And the great resignation I like to call it the great rethink. Again, I'm trying to be a little bit more positive with this whole concept. There's nothing wrong with people going and finding other opportunities that make sense for them. But I think it's interesting to think about what people are thinking and what's important to them and organizations. It's incumbent on organizations to um, really understand that they need to help people thrive. And there's so many things that can enable that. Absolutely. And just on a personal note, I myself have experienced quite a few of my colleagues and managers leaving. And I feel that impact in a much more profound way than I might have in the past because I'm working from home every day. And as Elena mentioned, we will definitely share this article from MIT Sloan Management Review in the show notes. But some of the topics that Elena has already mentioned that I think are worth highlighting, aside from the toxic corporate culture, which has many problematic elements, are things like job insecurity and reorganization. And that's certainly something I can relate to, seeing a lot of reorganization throughout the year. And then something that surprised me was high levels of innovation. So even though we tend to think of the word innovation as very positive, and it's always something that is to be celebrated and encouraged, this is actually a contributing factor when people leave where they feel that they have to put in longer hours, work at a faster pace, and endure more stress than they would in a slower moving company. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about the impact there, Elena. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised to see that too. I was and I wasn't. I knew that I did get a sense that people who are working uh, in a more fast paced, innovative, technological organization have a lot of demands. Those environments are so exciting. I personally thrive best in those organizations. But you need to make sure that the leaders that are uh, bringing to life these visions of innovation are also recognizing the importance of making it a point to support good well-being in the workplace, good mental health in the workplace. I always think about well-being. like It's just such a broad, abstract concept. And I've been working in this space now for a while, a couple of years, still have so much more to learn and do. 
Like we're never going to solve people's personal well-being goals and journeys. Like organizations can't answer for that, but they do have, we do have a responsibility to think about the the level of stress we're causing or not. So I'm a proponent and I'm an advocate for high levels of innovation, but I think we have to think about making sure that we're giving people the time and focus to recharge and restore. And we're clear on our expectations. If, you know, there's things that we need to deselect or deprioritize, let's do that. You know, and it just comes down to really good communication. So there's a lot of stress because people have no end in sight and, you know, you need strong leadership to keep people going. Mm -hmm. And leaders can put themselves in their team member's shoes sometimes too, perhaps more frequently than they might, to think about what are those things going on behind the scenes, especially where most of us are working from home. We don't have the same visibility as what we used to if we used to go to offices at all. Some of us have been working from home and definitely this is nothing new, but I think there's that added desire to see our performance recognized and to see also that our our leaders are paying attention to opportunities when we ask for, for example, like you mentioned, you love being in, in an innovative environment and it's so important to have opportunities that aren't necessarily just getting a promotion or a formal title change, but something that might be a lateral job move or even a new project. So you yourself mentioned just a moment ago, Elena, like having a new project to work on is so exciting, right? It's so exciting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm learning about what it will entail, but it's just so cool to be able to do that, learn something new, contribute in a different way. So I think leaders need to just continue to think about you know, ask genuine questions of your team members and genuine curiosity and really show that you're committed to their, you know, people's growth. And leaders also have to take care of themselves. And that's another trend. I forgot to mention it before. Another trend that we're seeing is we know senior leaders are on the verge of burnout. They've got their business to run. They've got their team to take care of. They've got family members to take care of. It's a lot. It's a lot. And so I think we just need to step back and ask ourselves, how do we want this year to really net out? What are our business objectives? Yes. But how are we going to set ourselves up to deliver on the business while also getting through unscathed? And I think that's the thing that's where we need to really put our focus on. And I love this toxic culture article for that reason. Yes. Yeah. It's, it also has some great suggestions. Um, and as Elena said, there's a few negative points that Elena has touched on, but we are going to come back to some of the ways that we can improve the situation or ways that leaders can help their teams But a related topic is this idea of toxic positivity. So the article talks about toxic culture, but a common buzzword these days seems to be toxic positivity. And I want to call it out here because I hear it being used with very different contexts. Sometimes I get the sense that when people use the word toxic positivity, they simply interpret that positivity is toxic. And I don't think that's quite right to say. I don't think positivity in and of itself is wrong or toxic or bad. But I want to talk about toxic positivity for a moment because it's related to what Elena mentioned around avoidance. And I think it's often a tool where people who are uncomfortable with conflict or negative feelings try to force positivity so that there's no open tension or challenge to the conversation or decision-making process. So let's talk a little bit about that, Elena. When you hear the word toxic positivity, how do you interpret that? I see toxic positivity as almost a sense of gaslighting. And it minimizes how people are feeling. It minimizes the severity of situations. And 
you know, I am an advocate for hope and optimism, but there's a, such a fine line as I'm learning, as I'm getting older and growing and learning and working longer than, you know, long career journey here. We need to be hopeful, but it needs to be realistic. And that's been my own personal challenge because I'm always trying to be, you know, the upbeat colleague, but there's dangers. And you are. <laughs> oh, you're very, you're very kind. But there's dangers in that because, you know, you've got to make sure that you're being realistic or you're having hard discussions instead of just, you know, glossing through things. So it takes a lot of conviction and a lot of bravery to, you know, step up and have hard discussions. This just happened to me recently where I had to confront a situation. So proud that I did. I cleared the air and now we're working beautifully again. We always had a great relationship and I think now we've taken this to the next level. But I think toxic positivity, I, I actually want to read more about this from a psychologist perspective. It's dangerous because it's um what's the right I don't know what word to use here. It kind of dismisses. It, it's dismissive, right? Yeah, it shuts people down. I think the word you used before was gaslighting. I think that's a good description because sometimes what happens when when somebody brings forward a point of view that might be perceived as negative or they sound critical person who maybe it's a leader or a colleague who hears that phrase or that sentiment and they might think I don't like this I don't want to go down that road they might actually suppress that person's sentiment and say oh no I think I think what you're saying isn't quite right you just didn't you didn't understand correctly or um, don't worry about that you should just focus on the positive don't always focus on the negative and again, to Elena's point, there's a lot of value in being positive and bringing optimistic energy. I love that as well. Um, and certainly we're not advocating to ruminate, but I think there is sort of this territory. Some people might use the character of Pollyanna from you know American culture, which is someone who always puts a positive spin on everything to the point where it's almost absurd. But I think the challenge with the toxic positivity that is particularly damaging, it isn't so much that it traumatizes people necessarily, but that when you are somebody who can't handle any criticism or any negative sentiment, the people around you have to filter every single thing that they say so that they're not necessarily going to cross your boundaries or what they perceive to be your boundaries. And so that can be really tiring. And we can even do that to ourselves. I don't know about you, but I've certainly had the thought where I felt self-critical and thinking, you know, don't focus on the negative so much. Don't worry about that. There's nothing you can do about that. And sometimes there's incredible value I found to simply acknowledging, yes, I am worried about X situation or I am sad that I lost somebody that I worked with and they're no longer going to work with me. Or I am disappointed that I won't get to see my family as soon as I thought because there's been another lockdown. And you can actually spend a lot less time feeling unhappy if you can simply acknowledge that and be with it for a few moments or however long you really need, which to be fair is never as long as we fear. I think that's some of the tendency towards toxic positivity often comes from a place of fear of if I allow myself to feel the fear or the anger, I'll get consumed by it and then I can't get back on track. I can't focus. But in my own life anyways, and based on the data that I've read, when we allow ourselves to feel those negative emotions, of course, it's not enjoyable. Nobody likes to feel those things. 
but actually allowing them to pass means we can move on to whatever comes next. And that's really what resilience is, right? It's being able to live those emotions, get through them, absorb them, process them, whatever it takes. And then you can come out on the other side, which might be literally only a few minutes later and have a better perspective. And sometimes I get it, it takes more than a few minutes. But maybe you want to talk a little bit about that and the nature of allowing ourselves to feel the frustration or the sadness or the grief or any of those sort of negative emotions that that people tend to shy away from. Yeah. And scientists do believe that, you know, to get through uncertainty, to get through hard times, you have to put a name on how you're feeling. So you're raising some excellent points on that. But I want to go back to something you said, though, about toxic positivity, people having to tiptoe around you. Like, that's just so dangerous in a workplace environment. You know, work needs to get done. We have to, you know, deliver on things. If someone can't approach someone with, of course, professionalism and respect to discuss an issue, there's big problems here. And this just happened to me on the receiving end of some feedback. And I feel like the person that wanted to give me the feedback didn't want to hurt my feelings. But I'm like, no, like hurt my feelings. Tell me, (laughs) rip it apart. Like this is the only way I'm going to do a good job. Like, please just, it's just feedback, honestly. And if we just have to remove ourselves from the work for a second, it'll be okay. But I mean, that's taken like 20 years of my career to get to this point. Normally I'd be like, oh God, I'm not doing a good job. But toxic positivity is so dangerous for the organization because mistakes can't be fixed or, you know, risks need to be mitigated. I just love that you brought the discussion there and I wanted to comment on that. But back to naming feelings, I think that goes back to, you know, we've all read the article by organizational psychologist Adam Grant, the New York Times. It's a it's a pivotal piece of literature that he wrote during the pandemic on languishing. You know, we can only move forward if we really stop to figure out how we're feeling. And I've got friends that are really going through some hard times. Finally, one friend has found a therapist that works for her, which is great. It's hard to find good therapists. We're already in a shortage in this country anyway. But I can see that the tides are turning for her because she's now naming how she's feeling. And that's the hardest thing is that we've got self-stigma, self-shame. We don't want to admit that we've got problems going on. But I've, I've got like 10 <laughs> problems right now. What's that Jay-Z song? 99 problems. Yes. yes. <laughs> but I digress. Anyhow, I go back to what you're saying. It's important to just, you know, stop for a second and be like, am I frustrated? Am I mad? Am I just sad? Do I need a snack? What Like what's going on? And I think that really helps. Yes. And sometimes it really is a snack or that we're tired. <laughs> Elena, just returning to what you mentioned with Adam Grant's article, which seemed to be on everybody's mind before that article came out, I don't know that any of us would have used the word languishing in everyday conversation, but it quickly became the buzzword for communicating how mediocre or or terrible we felt. Um, Some people interpret it differently, but I think the consensus is that it's simply not thriving. So there was many people and there continue to be many people who maybe feel like life is tolerable. I have a job. I, I have friends. I have family. Maybe people have their health for the most part, but I'm not feeling my my absolute best. And that was part of the message of that article was that it's okay to recognize that in yourself. And it's completely normal to not feel your best when we're all going through this additional stress and uncertainty. But what I kept coming back to every time I heard that word or somebody bring up the article is what comes after languishing? What's next? Do we find a different buzzword or do we continue with that theme 
to admit to ourselves, we're probably still languishing to some extent, but we're going to persevere. We're going to carry on. We're going to do our best. Talk a little bit about that, Elena. And I think you also mentioned there was a flip article in the New York Times that was looking at the idea of thriving and flourishing and positive psychology. Yeah, I, I love positive psychology. And Professor Martin Seligman from the University of Pennsylvania does so much good work, pioneering work. He's leading some amazing work for like 20 plus years. He is a psychologist by trade. But basically, languishing, we're always going to languish. We're always going to ebb and flow. Like When this pandemic is over, life continues. And I think we're always going to have moments where things are feeling boring or, you know, are we doing what we need to be doing? And do I have more meaning in my life? And you can, we can flip that around, but we also have to recognize that it, this isn't just because of the pandemic. This is, it's life. And so, oh, so true. it's life. And so we can turn it around and you can end up on a path towards flourishing, which is all about, you know, the good life and clinical psychologists do believe that you can get there by, you know, adding more purpose to your life, more meaning, more appreciation, uh, you know, stronger relationships and so on. But I think we have to remember that we can get back on a path towards total well-being and we just have to be mindful of where we are at in life right now. And so I love the work that Adam Grant did with that article. And you said something interesting about like life is tolerable. I don't want just tolerable. I want to max mm -hmm. out my my time and I want every day to be amazing and I want to grow and I want to do everything. And I've had my own personal existential crises around this. And I think what's kind of quieted my mind is knowing that not every day is going to be great, but I'm able to start somewhere and I'm able to usher a bit more meaning into my day and just got a new puppy. So that's obviously great. <laughs> and I think we should all get dogs uh, or cats. Tell everyone about Rue. <laughs> oh, she's a little toy poodle. She's so cute. She is super cute. And you'll have to check out Elena's Instagram because the photos are adorable. And even if you don't have a dog or you can't have a dog right now for various reasons, I encourage you to live vicariously through Elena's budding love friendship with uh, little Rue. Just so cute. Adorable. Toy poodles are amazing. I just, this is my second toy poodle in my life and so, so lucky. I want to go back to thriving for a second. I think we have the capacity to thrive. We also have to recognize that there will be some challenging times in our life. And sometimes they require a little extra care. And there's some good mental health supports in this country. Check with your workplaces, lean on your friends. But I think we can quiet our minds by recognizing that some days we just have to go easy on ourselves. And I think uh, easier said than done, but such an important exercise. Yes, yes. And one of the terms that Adam Grant referred to is the, the popular idea of flow, which was coined by, and I'm going to attempt this name, but please forgive me if I don't get it quite right, Muhaili Csikszentmihalyi. But he just passed away. Yeah. I'd say in September. And he really did a lot of transformational work with this concept of flow. And it's a buzzword, but it's such an important, important word that we start adding into our lives. Because when we're in that state of really doing something with purpose and enjoying the moment and enjoying the work or enjoying the activity, that brings us so much meaning. And I think we should challenge ourselves every day, even just 10, 15 minutes, what gets us into a state of flow? Who in our lives help enable that and what helps us usher that into our day? So I think it's important to think about it. The way that I think about flow is that it's how do you get lost in an activity that brings you joy? And Elena mentioned purpose. 
but it doesn't have to be something grandiose. It can be something grandiose or something amazing like volunteering for an important cause, but it can also be doing a jigsaw puzzle, crafting, gardening. For me, Today, I spent a few minutes repotting a couple of plants that were a little root bound. And once I got into the activity, I felt relaxed. I felt present. Maybe this sounds a bit funny or silly. If you're not a plant lover, you're not a gardener, that's fine. That's totally okay. There's so many other activities. The point is tuning into what enables you to get into flow. Where do you see that in your life? And are you even aware when you're in flow? Because I think it took me a while to understand what that was when I first learned about the concept. What is an example for you, Elena? Where do you find yourself in a state of flow? Yeah, I'd say I'm, I'm in a state of flow when I'm like arranging my flowers. I love to create great arrangements and I just love gardening as well. I grow roses. That's like the extent of it. But you've got to see the roses on Instagram. Again, Instagram plug. (laughs) Yes, Instagram plug. Just wait for this year because I've got my roses and I'm going to set up some photos with the dog. But I'd say flow is when I'm doing that activity. And I do find flow in my work as well. I find flow when I'm developing draft of something that I know is going to impact a team member, you know, and I feel like it's incumbent on us to find meaning and bring meaning into our day and into our work. And I think we're always talking, oh, I, my organization isn't creating purpose for me. I think we have to create it for ourselves. Like we have to meet our places of work halfway, you know? So I think flow for me is those flowers, but also flow for me is working on a piece of work that I know is going to change someone's life. And I, I have to always remind myself You know, every time I hang up with a team member who's reached out, wanted to talk about something, or if I'm working on a draft that is, you know, it's in a really bad spot, I know that a team member is going to read it. I know that it's going to change someone's life. And that gets me through the day. And that's just so, so rewarding. I think that's so important. And what I've also learned more recently is how to identify barriers to flow. It's really funny how easily we allow ourselves to get distracted or we avoid things that we know that we'll actually like doing. And I don't know if you notice this, Elena, but when I'm about to work on a more substantive piece of writing or a communication strategy, I know logically that I will enjoy it and that I will get into that state of flow, but I find myself sometimes procrastinating by doing smaller tasks. Like I just need to check my email one more time or first I have to make a cup of tea. And I think part of it is it does tend to suck us in when we get into that state. But also when we get into a state of flow, it's not necessarily just pure fun. So there is legitimate challenge there. And sometimes it involves coming up against our own fears about can I do this as well as I hope to? Can I achieve the same impact that I did last time or even more so? Do you feel that getting into a state of flow is a challenge? more now than ever? And what are some of the ways that people can approach this to find a state of flow more easily and maybe identify those barriers and eliminate them without wasting as much time? I'm finding that as much as I'm, me personally, as much as I'm, you know, focused and diligent, I'm actually feeling really distracted. And I know I'm not alone in that. Like I can't even get through a basic task, just anything. Just give me an example. I have to fold some laundry 
It takes me like four hours to get through the pile. I don't know why. I just, my mind is racing. Should I be doing this? Oh, should I be reading that? Oh, should I be posting this on LinkedIn? Like, who am I trying to impress? And who are we measuring ourselves up against? And that creates so much anxiety, honestly, that's unnecessary. Sometimes it could be hard to get into flow because we don't know where to start. Or maybe we're not giving our prom- ourselves permission to just let go and just get into it. I don't know why that happens. Elena, you've definitely raised this idea with me about distraction and giving ourselves uninterrupted time and small goals to help build up maybe towards a state of flow. And I think that's fundamental to putting us into the right gear, so to speak, so that we're going into the right direction and creating momentum. And so often I feel like motivation or a desire to do things might not necessarily be there, But I can just start with the idea that I will feel like doing it halfway through doing it. Somehow the momentum, the action tends to build its own sort of energy. Do you ever notice that? Sometimes, yes, I do. I do. And it's an interesting way that you're putting it. Uh, We're building the momentum. And I think we just need to uh, just jump in, right? But it's so hard. And I think it's, I personally am challenged by that. So I I know I have to commit to to getting better. Elena, I think what you were saying about feeling distracted applies to many of us more so now than ever, partly because we don't have the same level of interactions with others. And so I find that it's often interactions with other people where I I come away feeling higher energy, like I want to do something, like I want to act on whatever we planned or what we talked about. And I think that you actually have great insight onto this particular aspect of work life and well-being. Talk a little bit about how interactions with others impact our ability to cope with stress and pull ourselves out of a slump or even take ourselves out of a state of being distracted. I think what we're lacking, and it's no surprise, is the nonverbal cues of when we're together. And I'm not going to even water this down because I know we've all, you know, we're talking about this for so long. But I just, we miss being with each other. And it's those small nuances that help build relationships that, you know, we're just so tired of not having it. And I think we're just, we're, we're just exhausted. But I think from a distraction perspective, we're just so caught up in thinking about the fact that so much time has passed, you know, what, like, what do we want to really be doing? Who do we want to be spending our time with? And that's for me is the distraction. Like, I'm just always thinking like, am I becoming who I need to be for the next 10 years of my life? And how is this shaping me? And it's shaping me positively and it's shaping me negatively. I think we miss, we miss being with each other. Just that's it. Point final. Like I, it's just affecting us so, so much. And just just think about it. Like when we get to work, like you get off the go train and you get downtown Toronto and you're just like, ah, that wave of excitement and you're going to see everybody and you know it's going to be an amazingly productive day. Like, man, that, geez, was that even reality at some point? My God, it's just so fun <laughs> and so great. And you get together and you have those discussions and you're working on stuff. And we all, like, I think we just can't wait. And we're holding on to that. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, I kind of want to take a bit of a turn in the conversation and talk about some of what we can do this year to, as Elena said, get to the place where we want to be for the next year, the next 10 years, whatever it may be, and talk a little bit about what we can actually do to help ourselves. And we've touched on this already, but 
I want to make sure we don't leave listeners without those specific details. What do we do differently this year, Elena? What do we take with us into this year? Because it's still going to be early in 2022 when this podcast is released, where we maybe think or act a little differently. We use some tools that may have grown a little bit rusty. Yeah, I think that the year is still relatively new, and I still think we should be aiming high on what we want to achieve. But I'd say from a well-being perspective, think about what you truly want to be doing with your time. That for me is such a big thing. And if the listeners out there feel that they're not working with true purpose, true meaning, I was just reading something from a Toronto Board of Trade article perspective, like don't just quit your job, you know, line something up, see what's out there, have informational interviews. I would never say quit. Don't just quit. See what's even could be potentially available in your organization. So just ask yourself, like, what do you want to be doing? Number one. Number two, take care of yourself. You know, take care of your mental health. Take care of your physical health. Get your doctor's appointments in. If you have the luxury of being able to use virtual care, use it. Connect with therapists. There's a lot of free resources as well. I'd say find time to be in flow. Find something that uh, is just completely at ease. And don't feel guilty that you're doing that. I think it's so important. And, you know, make time for some good sleep, make time for good relationships, make time for people. And I think just last night I was invited to a virtual 40th birthday party and it was so fun. I I usually shy away from those things. I don't want to be bothered on Saturday nights, (laughs) but it was great to see people. It was so fun. And I saw some old high school friends and uh, I, I never do that, but I was like, man, I need to do more of this. I have these tendencies of isolating and withdrawing, and that's how I recharge. I'm an introvert. That's how I recharge. Um, So just make the time for other people. Find a community cause that's important to you. Give back. You know, there is scientific evidence that demonstrates that when you do something for others, it creates good positive emotions in your body, which supports good cardiovascular health. And go easy on yourself. There's so many things you could be doing to take care of yourself. Just start somewhere and, and go easy on, I hate New Year resolutions. Don't feel bad if you didn't get that jog in. Just <laughs> whatever, chill and try again tomorrow. So I would say to sum it up, go easy on yourself, try something new and uh, gravitate towards the people that build you up. I love it. Yes. And if I can add that uh, my favorite book that I read and reviewed last year was 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. It's a mortal's guide to time management. One of my favorite lessons from that book is that even if you listed out everything that you absolutely would love to do in your lifetime, you won't get to it. So you will have to cross things off your list. You will have to omit some things from your life that you would love to do. But paradoxically, that can also make it easy when you don't really love doing something. Remember that there's probably 10 other things you'd love to be doing that you might not get time for. So if you have to decide if there's something that you're doing right now that doesn't feel particularly valuable to do, maybe you've done it for many years because it seemed good when you started, but maybe it's no longer serving you. It's okay to let that go too. You don't have to keep every habit for a lifetime if it doesn't serve you anymore, if it doesn't serve a function. You also don't have to uh, force relationships. Like I said goodbye to a friendship last year that was over 20 years and it was the best thing I could have done. I can't emphasize this enough. Like don't hang on to things because they served you 15, 20 years ago. You know, you can only get better and be better by saying hard goodbyes and you have to. Yeah. 
And you said a hard goodbye in that case? Yep. Bye. Wow. Well, I love the expression, friends are there for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And there's going to be many relationships that fit those first two categories. And growing apart or ending things formally is not necessarily a tragedy. Sometimes that frees up your time and your spirit to focus on things that you never would have otherwise done. I think this is so important and it's underrated because we don't like quitting in our culture. We hate the idea of quitting and we think, if I quit, I'm not a quitter, I shouldn't quit, it's bad. But sometimes the only way you'll get to do what you love is by quitting something that you don't love, <laughs> and even if you, you had all the right intentions. So I, I love that example. Thank you, Elena. There's a new book that's coming out by Daniel Pink. It's called The Power of Regret. And it's called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Makes Us Forward. I I already pre-ordered it on Amazon. Anyway, uh, what I'm seeing here in excerpt is regret is an indispensable emotion we can use to make better decisions, reach higher levels of performance, and bring more meaning into our life. I always worry, do I have regret? Will I have regret when I'm dying? You know, what, what do I regret so far? I'm turning 40 this year. What do I regret so far? Nothing. Nothing? I don't regret anything. Oh. And... Is that a bad thing? Maybe I should have a bit of regret so that I could look back and maybe reassess how I said, you know, created some situations for myself. But um, it's important to think about what could have been or what maybe was to help us move forward. I think regret is powerful. And I'm going to listen to that audiobook absolutely because I think this is, a, is an important lesson. When I look back at what I regret in my lifetime, consistently, almost every single regret is related to persisting on something that I should have quit. It's usually because I think, oh, I don't want to quit this particular project or leave this particular job because either I'm afraid because I don't know what my options are or it's comfortable. Comfort is, you know, that is easy. You don't have to resist anything. So if I look back and I and I see what did I have in those situations where I did have regrets, that's usually what it is. It's like, oh, I wish I had quit that job a year before I left, or I wish I had ended that particular dysfunctional relationship a few months earlier. I wish I hadn't spent so much time on a problematic issue and just kind of let things be. So I don't think that that's bad. I I think it's helpful to learn those lessons. That's definitely something that I ask myself now, and I do have a sense of uncertainty. Is it worth persisting in this or would quitting free up some energy and time to do something better? I think we should just be focusing on what's most important. And if something isn't serving us anymore, let's have the courage to look at it and figure out what we want to do. And I think that will really empower us to have good well-being, good mental health, quiet that inner chatter, and uh, focus on what really matters for ourselves. Yes, I agree. If anybody's feeling particularly stuck right now, I'd love to give them an example of something that might disrupt that stuck switch. What have you done lately, Elena, that inspired you or made you think differently? I got a dog and I watched Afterlife 3. Literally, that's what I've done. Oh, such a good show. Those are two things that I've done so far that's making January so worthwhile. Having a dog in your life is amazing. But Afterlife 3, Ricky Gervais knocks it out of the park. It's the series finale. I think this is the last season. That's right. He kept it at three and it was such a beautiful, beautiful ending. I cried. I laughed, cried more. 
And what I love about that show is that obviously it looks at suicide, it looks at mental health, it looks at hope, it looks at despair and grief, but there's beauty in the everyday. You know, I feel like we're always trying to ask ourselves or waiting for these monumental moments in life that are like prescriptive and this is the moment that's going to be amazing. I feel like sometimes small moments, like moments right now, you know, we're talking, two friends chatting, like this is so fantastic. And I feel like the character had an epiphany and realized um, that through his despair, through his grief, life's still so beautiful and so hopeful and small little interactions with each other can mean so much to someone. So such a beautiful reminder and uh, so well done, Ricky Gervais, if you're listening. (laughs) I love that show. And I love how awful he can be because we all know somebody who's the ultimate grump and maybe they make us laugh because they say things they shouldn't and they're outrageous. But what makes me tear up about that show is these little breakthroughs and epiphanies, like you said, that he has where he sees somebody else's humanity, even though he was annoyed with them two and a half seconds before. And there's so many instances of this throughout the show. I can't even think, I don't even want to list one example because it just happens throughout every single scene. And they're all reminders to him that life is happening right now, literally. It's happening in this moment. And you're not done. You're not done. Even though he's he's experienced this tragedy, I'm not giving away any spoilers when I say that the premise of the show is that his wife has died of cancer and it's his coping with it that makes the story. And what is so magic about the show is like you say, it's these little everyday moments of life, whether it's an interaction with a postman or the nurse that works in the nursing home or a stranger on the street or colleagues that he kind of pokes fun of, but they're all opportunities to reframe why life matters and to experience meaning. And I think that's why I bawled my eyes out at the end because you see him finally get it. And when any of us get it, it's a bit magic in that moment. And maybe part of the tragedy of life is that we have to keep getting it because we tend to forget. And we walk away sometimes and we think, oh, yeah, yeah, I have to get to whatever it is I was going to do. But that show is genius. And you will need a full box of tissues. Let me warn you in advance. Please make sure there's a full box of tissues nearby because you will laugh a lot, but you will cry. Yeah, so well said. So well said. And it just goes back to the concept of what we've been talking about through this whole episode is just how do we bring more meaning into our life? And it will be over before we know it. And again, I don't want to be doom and gloom, but our time here is so, so limited. And, um, you know, we get worked up about this and that and our careers and we have to have the status car and the status bag and all this. And I love all of that, but none of it matters. None of it matters. And I think we just have to remember to... uh, Just take stock and enjoy. Enjoy this moment like we've been enjoying our time today. Yes, I've loved this conversation. Having you on the podcast the second time because we had the previous interview on Audiobook Reason 5. I feel like you embody that presence of living in the moment and vulnerability. That's just so refreshing. Like you're willing to reframe your ideas and revise what you think and it comes through with a lot of emotional authenticity, and I love that. Oh, you're very kind. I'm just just trying. And if this gives your audience a glimmer of hope, then congratulations on this amazing podcast. <laughs> Thank you. 
I hope everybody listening feels as inspired as I do right now. Elena, you always get me fired up and ready to pounce on a new project. I feel like every time we talk, that's my emotion at the end. So thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. I I share the same sentiment. You always inspire me to think a little bit more about big questions. So thank you again for having me and always so good talking to you. This was awesome. If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.